Welcome to episode 15 of the Oxfordshire Teacher Training Podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined once again by Tom Bolter, who's the Director of Secondary Education for the River Learning Trust. And those of you who've been listening along since the very beginning of our podcast series might remember back in episode two, so right back um, in our first first season, um, Tom joined me and we talked about education myths. But today, Tom's here. I'm going to be talking particularly about the challenges for disadvantaged and vulnerable children. So, Tom, thank you very much for joining us once again. Pleasure. Um, Tom, at the time of recording, so we're, we're actually recording this right at the end of the, uh, the academic year um, back in July, although this episode is going to go out in um, September, possibly even at the end of September, beginning of October time. Um, so we, there's one bit we can't predict, which is what things are going to be like by the time this is broadcast. But what would you say at the moment, Tom, um, is the extent of the challenge at the moment for disadvantaged students? Yeah, I mean, I think even, um, you know, COVID aside, forgetting uh, the, the pandemic, um, the challenge of, of teaching um, our most disadvantaged uh, students is absolutely massive. It's fundamental um, to what schools uh, think about and what schools work on, um, because I suppose it's fundamentally, uh, it gets to the heart of the kind of social justice role of schools, um, that we have some students that come to us that do find it um, more difficult to learn, uh, they do make less progress, they do um, attain less wellness, all sorts of, sort of, co- sort of complex reasons for that. Um, but there are things that schools can do to address that. So it comes down to, you know, a sort of fundamental um, challenge around, around fairness, um, around providing equality of opportunity um, for, for all, really. Um, you know, and I think, I think it's great it's great that we do when you when you step back and think um about the amount of emphasis the amount of time that we spend in in good schools anyway um talking about and working with um uh disadvantaged students uh for me it's evidence of uh, a sort of ever growing sort of compassion in the system um that that we know we need to look after um uh, these these sort of students first now of course it's really important that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that any student um, that is is in a disadvantaged category, any student, for example, um, gets the, the pupil premium uh, grant is eligible for the PP grant, is necessarily going to do badly at school because, of course, lots of them don't. Um, but nevertheless, it's uh, proportionally too many students in that category don't do as well, and that's, that's something we, we do need to do something about. We're not talking about something that's that's just arrived because of COVID nineteen. This is this is this has been there, you know, from the outset. And you talk a little bit about social justice. And um, uh, here at Oxford Teacher Training, we're going to be having a social justice uh, Super Thursday with our associate teachers, our trainees, um, coming up very very shortly. And in fact, our next episode after this, um, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about social justice as well. Um, so, Tom, thinking about um, what we can do, you know, if we if we are an effective school, what kind of things what are we doing to maximize that opportunity to learn do you think in particular for disadvantaged students um, what do you think it is that, that effective schools are doing that's, that's making things work yeah it's a really interesting question and, and there's loads of things that have been tried in the past you know um, because this has been going for a, a, a long time um, emphasis in this area there's all sorts of kind of peripheral things like um, 
you know, make sure you know who they are, put them in a seating plan, mark their books first, um, all that sort of thing. Um, but I think there's an increasing understanding now that, that that's not, they're not the things that are going to make uh, the difference. Um, and that really what we need to do is just provide really, really strong uh, teaching um, in, in a really, really effective sort of learning environment um, for all kids and that will that is the best thing that we can do uh, to help our disadvantaged um, students to do do really really well. So I'd be thinking uh, getting the absolute basics right um, and as good as we can be. So uh, the importance, therefore, of, of behaviour and um, and routines, um, you know, being really really sort of rigorous uh, with, with with the routines and the organisation of the classroom. Um, where we are struggling with behaviour, we've got problems that we, we just get help with that, that's, that's okay. Uh, behaviour isn't uh, an individual teacher's fault, but it is our responsibility to, to, to do something about it if it's happening. Um, and I think just, just being as organised as we possibly can be um, as teachers is incredibly valuable. Um, Certainly, you know, when I look back at the early years of my career, it's something I struggled with, the, the, the kind of um, organising so many lessons happening all the time. Um, but it's really, really important that, that, you know, the environment is kind of orderly and everything runs smoothly. And so if, if you are struggling with that, it's again, it's just, OK, get the help that you need with that. Um, you know, ask for help with it. Uh, so, yeah, I would say rather than periphery stuff, Getting the basics in the classroom is probably the best thing that, that we can do for, for all. But yeah, that, advantage or yeah, that's that's brilliant. Thank you, thank you, Tom. Um, I'm I'm thinking here again um, about about the, the role of a mentor in, in Oxfordshire teacher training, and obviously one of the things that um, that you, you're going to be doing as a mentor is, is very much supporting our, our trainees, our associate teachers, um, to get some of those basics right, but but also to give the opportunity for um, people to go go around round schools and see how other experienced teachers are doing that, um, mm. see how, how it's being done um, really really well. Um, it's all really about high expectations, isn't it? That that importance of of having a really high um, set of expectations for everybody. Um, so so I'm thinking if. If I am a mentor working working with an associate teacher, um, and and I'm trying trying to de develop a sense of you know what is it going to be about those those organisational things and, and those those high expectations, are there any are there any things that you would you'd be suggesting to um, a mentor listening into this um, that they might be might be kind of guiding our our associate teachers towards um, to to make sure that 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 sense of high expectations is just becomes a natural part of teaching. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? This idea of high expectations and what that actually means as a teacher, because it is so important. But I also feel like it's something that you you can't you have to genuinely have those high expectations. You can't just say you've got high expectations. You, you can't just say to the kids, oh, I, I expect really highly of you. It's I kind of feel that you have to prove to yourself as a teacher, you have to go through this process of proving uh, that, that A, you can teach the kids to do difficult and challenging things. And, you know, then that the kids can, can do it. I think high expectations come almost as a byproduct of successful teaching. Um, you know, again, I think when I look back on my early years of teaching, when I wasn't being 
tremendously successful I have to say I mean I used to have good relationships and that sort of thing but I don't think I actually taught them um you know really really well um and I don't think I did have high expectations because I didn't have any evidence uh to 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 challenge that um to be honest it was only when I got like much better training and much better um and started teaching better actually starting actually blindly these kids can really really do well and once you get there everything changes I think Mm. Uh, because high expectations when you really know and really really believe much more than the kids might do themselves that they can learn these things or they can perform this high level then it when you look them in the eye when you're talking to the classroom you're saying right you can do this you will be and I'm going to make you do it you know um and that it's hard to fake that I think uh I think I think you have to get yourself to a point where you really really believe it which is difficult right if you're starting off in teaching and uh, you know, that, that kind of comes to the experience for it. But I guess what I'm saying then is advice for mentors is try to get the teachers to prove to themselves that they can do a really, really good job. So focus on like, individual bits of lessons or individual um, activities. Really get the detail right. Make it go really, really well. Um, and then it's, it gains momentum. Do you know what I mean? Well, it's yeah. still about success, isn't it? Same for kids, same for teachers. The more successful you are, the more your expectations grow, the more exciting it all becomes. Um, and, and then and then, then the culture is different, I suppose. But, but try to get increasing levels of success in the classroom. I think that breeds the expectations that we're after. Absolutely. I, know, I think I, you're, you're completely right, is, is that, you know, you could, there, there are certain, some things that, you know, people sometimes talk about teaching being a little bit like acting, but there are some bits of it that just aren't and you have to mm. be there thinking about this um, and actually thinking about it and genuinely believing that you you can you can and you will make that difference for for all of these um, children that you're teaching that's right because so, I, I think kids know you know you, you you can't fool kids you can't it's the same i think you see it with praise so the difference between when you authentically praise and when kids are praised just because we think we're supposed to praise them do you know what i mean so it's the same thing when a kid's in a brilliant piece of work and you say to them, oh, wow, that is amazing. I'm so impressed with that. Um, that just comes across much more to them than when you say, oh, really good. Yeah, well, and, you know, you don't, you don't really mean it. So, um, yeah, there's something about authenticity, isn't there, that, that we need to get to Completely. really get to believing what we're saying. Yeah. Now, um, Tom, in the in the past, we've we've talked a lot about um, uh, Rob Coe's work that he did with Sutton Trust a few years ago, and what makes great teaching. And we've, we've I know you've done sessions with um, associate teachers working with us about about that. So um, at the time of recording, it's it's now just a few weeks since um, the the great teaching evidence review, the kind of the sort of uh, what makes great teaching part two that Rob. Um, has, has led on has come out and one of the, the priorities so so um, hopefully by now you've had a chance to look at this but if you haven't there, there are four priorities in it but one of those four priorities um, is this sense of creating a supportive environment for learning and um, although we've talked about some, some of the kind of the, the, the general themes of this just wondering do you think that a supportive environment for learning is any different um, for a disadvantaged student than it is for any other one um, yeah, no, I don't think so. And of course, we, we do need to be really, really careful not to talk about uh, an average disadvantaged student or, or as if there's an archetype of a disadvantaged student, because there isn't really, you know, they're all different. We're all uh, those sort of individual 
strengths and challenges and that sort of thing. Um, but no, I mean, I really like the the co, uh, you know, um, the great teaching report. I'd really recommend um, uh, reading it back because it's got lots of good practical advice. In terms of that supporting environment, uh, supportive environment, I think, yeah, of course, you know, the interpersonal dynamics that go on, the teachers that are appropriately sort of encouraging and warm and, and all that sort of thing is, is really important. Um, I think it's it's important that teachers are supportive through kind of modelling the love of their subject um, and teaching with genuine sort of enthusiasm and curriculum. And again, that's got to be authentic. You've got to actually really, really like it. Uh, and if you don't, if, if you're not really enjoying a topic, well, find out more about it, I think. Work on your subject knowledge until you do. get. I think it's that fundamental sense that everything that we teach is really, really interesting, um, as long as you know enough about it to be confident and enjoy teaching it. Also, something about not ex- not getting defensive when kids aren't interested, particularly <laughs> early on. I think because they won't always be interested in what we're we're teaching them, and, and that's okay. Sometimes I think we can have a bit of a defensive response. It feels like our enthusiasm is being sort of rejected or whatever. But I think we just got to expect that to happen. Curiosity and being interested in things that often comes later. You know, that often comes. Uh, as a product of learning lots of stuff about it rather than necessarily being there at the start. So I think having that kind of emotional intelligence not to, uh, to A, be enthusiastic and B, not to be overly concerned if kids don't reciprocate that, that's, that's okay. Um, I think there's something about su- supportive environments, which again comes back to behaviour. And I'm interested in that idea of how are we supportive as teachers? There's something about a diff- deferred nature of sort of kindness and deferred compassion which is a recognition that the kindest thing we can do really for kids who are struggling at school is to teach them so well and make them do the work so that they do better and of course in the moment that kindness and compassion might manifest itself by actually being pretty strict and really having high standards and and not um you know, not accepting any sort of messing around, that sort of thing. So it's not necessarily a supportive environment where we're always uh, sort of smiling and, and praising and that sort of thing, although, you know, they're fine to do that. But I have to say, some of, I would say in my career, some of the teachers I've seen who've had the most positive impact on disadvantaged kids in the long term, i.e. kids have really learned, they've really uh, grown in themselves because of being in those teachers' classes. I've not always necessarily been the smiliest teachers or the or the, the sort of warmest teachers necessarily. Um, but they have been high standards, uh, you know, genuine belief that belief that the kids can do it, well organized, um, good behaviour, all those sorts of things. So it might not look super kind of cuddly and compassionate and kind in the surface, but it, it is what it is. In the, in the long term. Now, um, I've only got one more question, but I, I, it may be a question that we, we spend um, a fair amount of time talking about. So um, one of the things that we, you and I have been talking about um, a little bit in advance of this is the way in which we, we can kind of uh, get teachers to invest time and effort to get students to learn more by using highly intentional processes. So I want mm. to just, uh, perhaps first of all, for anybody who's not come across that phrase before, um, just uh, explain a little bit about it, and then and then uh, we'll, we'll dig in a little more, a little bit more deeply about what 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 this means um, about helping students to learn more. Yeah, so this is about um, 
intentional, highly intentional processes, as it suggests, like intentional approaches to teaching. Now, the best way to look at it is to think, okay, in my subject, whatever that may be, there are likely to be a core sort of suite of activities that I'm going to do repeatedly with the kids. So, you know, if I'm a, an English teacher, I'm going to be reading with them, I'm going to be um, modelling writing, I'm going to be doing quizzes, that sort of thing. If I'm an MFL teacher, I'm going to be teaching vocabulary, I'm going to be um, quizzing vocabulary, I'm going to be, um, you know, sort of uh, doing paired work on pronunciation or whatever. Um and the idea of, so they, they would be your high value tasks, the things that as a teacher, you know, you're going to do frequently. It's not necessarily the only things you'll ever do, but it's your core set of activities. Now, once you've established that, and I'd really encourage people to, to think about that and write it down. What are your top five or eight activities that you really ought to get good at first? When, once, you, once you know what they are, you're then trying to really, really think through a sort of optimal process to do that. How will you do that? And the reason that you do this is because when you've got kids who find it hard to learn, you've got to get the detail right, right? Because there's all sorts of risks, all sorts of things that can go wrong uh, in lessons, which means that, that these kids won't, won't learn. Uh, it might be that it's easy for them to lose their attention. It might be that they don't have uh, the residual literacies or vocabulary or whatever, and they won't understand um, what, you know, a concept or whatever that just pops up that's necessary. So that, yeah, so then you, you sort of, you, you go in deeply and you, you think about, okay, when I do this, when I run a, a test or read an article with a class, this is the process I'm going to follow. Now, of course, it, it would be a fallacy to say that there is perfect processes that, that would work with every class in every context, right? But that's not really the point. The point is that you think through the detail the way you do your core activities. Yeah. Yeah, which is sort of to an example. That would be cool. Okay, so the one I often use for that is uh, the idea of, of if you're reading uh, a sort of extended text with a class, let's say an article, so not necessarily a novel, but uh, an article you might read in, in English or RS or history or loads of subjects where you want to read a kind of reasonably challenging article with kids. So if you are, for example, a disadvantaged student with poor literacy or poor vocabulary or poor residual knowledge, then there's all sorts of risks there for you. And it is amazing, really. We do have to be very, very conscious of that idea, idea about residual knowledge. I mean, for example, I was teaching a group of kids once about um, Of Mice and Men, the John Steinbeck novel. Hmm. And one of the things that they need to know there is about it that's set in California, Right. And it's easy to think, OK, fine. So we'll just tell them that it's in, in California. But then, of course, it, it transpires that a group of kids that don't know what that is. And you can see advantage playing out. Hey, if you've been to the States, if you've been to, you know, done a tour down the West Coast um, with your, you know, your, your family in the holidays, you'll probably know this already. But, but some kids what really don't know that. And then, of course, I remember in a lesson I was teaching, I got really stuck there because I had to explain to them what California was. So then, of course, you have to explain what a state is. <laughs> and that's really hard. So then I was I was floundering about trying to make a, a link to like, well, it's like a county. So like Essex. Yeah. <laughs> and not that much like Essex, I suppose. But, um, but you, can, you, you know, because I hadn't anticipated the knowledge gap there, had I thought of that in advance, 
some of these kids won't know what California is. I could have come up with a very, very clear visual, you know, shown them this. That's, that's what it needed. They need to be shown it. Um, but because I hadn't thought through that detail, I just got in a complete mess. You know what I mean? And, and it was confusing. So back to the, um, so, so my point is that's just illustrating the risks that you have. Let's say you then want to read an article about it. So what you might do then for a highly intentional process with an article is, okay, we know there's a risk that they won't know the words. So the first thing you do is you directly teach them uh, five, six, seven of the key difficult words that are come up, going to come up. And you particularly think about the ones near the front of the article. Right? And you just teach it directly. They won't remember it all. That's fine. You just introduce them to the word. So you need the word, you need a definition, you need an example. And do it quickly. I would do that call response. So my turn, your turn, you say it, they say it, uh, but just really quick, direct teaching. Following that, you then, uh, the next bit in the process is you preview the article. You tell them what it's going to be about and you tell them a couple of things that are quite difficult in it. So, so look out for the bit where it talks about, uh, I don't know, the gold rush. And remember, this was when this happened. So you preview it for them. They then read it because, of course, your second um, problem there is they might not understand it. They read it. So how do you do that bit? Do you get them to read it out individually? Well, you know, one at a time in the class? You could do. There's big risks with that. Um, they might not want to do that. Uh, they might not read it very well. Uh, you might get your more confident readers putting their hand up, dominating, whatever. So in this process, you would get them to read it to each other in pairs, a sentence at a time. And the instruction there is when your partner is reading, you listen and you help them with any difficult words. So they read through the article, blah, 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 blah. You, you just monitor, you walk around the room. Next thing that you do is when you, when you think they've sort of got to the end, you might give them an activity to follow up or you make a decision when to stop. At that point, you read the article to them as the teacher and you uh, tell stories, you, you sort of, you're then on stage, right? You tell anecdotes, you kind of bring it to life, you ask questions, you ask four questions, you do all that bit. Um, and then at the end, then the final bit of the process is they do some sort of comprehension work or, or, um, or sort of learning work to learn the key points. So that's an example of how then if, you're, if you are a disadvantaged kid who struggles to read, you've been carefully sort of guided through that lesson. You've been introduced to the hard words. So when you come up across them and you're reading to your mate, you've seen it before. You've been introduced to it. It's not a complete blank to you. You've had it previewed to you. So you kind of know what to expect. So you recognise things as you go. This is the problem with reading. You see kids just get completely lost. They get completely lost. They don't know what's going on. So we're mitigating that risk. They're reading to their friend next to them or to their partner. So it's not that public shameful thing, but they are practicing reading. They're reading out loud. You can hear them. You can stand around and listen to them. Um, and then it all gets consolidated by the teacher. Now, you know, it takes time, but it's a, it's a safe process for these kids, right? And that's, that's, that's what we want. We want these kids to leave the lesson feeling successful. Whereas if I just turn up at the start of the lesson and say, right, we're going to read this article, my eyes on the page, everyone off you go, or I start reading it, I'm just, it takes more than that to teach kids who find it hard to learn. It, it's harder than that. So, so yeah, HIPs, highly intentional processes, are just about thinking, teaching through in detail and trying to codify, trying to write down 
ways of doing things that we we can have greater confidence are going to work. They might not always work, but uh, but that's the level I think that we need to be thinking to. You see what I mean? And I think that's there's so much of what you've just said there, Tom, which um, kind of encapsulates really what what we've been talking about this afternoon. So so although we, in theory we we started off by thinking about you know the particular challenge for disadvantaged students. Um, hopefully what's come across in in this for anyone who's listening is is that actually um, the, the way in which you go about teaching, that the method is going to work for, for everybody. And it's, th- it's just that idea of thinking ahead, thinking beforehand. What What is it that, that people might not know that is going to prevent them from being able to, to engage in with what's going on? Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure again to talk with you this afternoon. Um, we hope that um, everybody who's listening into this particular episode has, has picked up some useful nuggets along the way. Certainly, I'm, I'm needing to get back into the classroom at the moment. <laughs> to go and to go and remind myself of some of these 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 things that you know i in a way one of the challenges um that, that mentors may find is that you you're almost doing these things automatically and having to go back to that stage of actually being highly intentional and thinking okay so what is it that i've got to be thinking about um to make sure i do that is is such a useful thing to do so tom thank you That's so much yeah. no pleasure thank you very much matthew good to speak to you great